from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Shadi Tului Wallace on September 10, 2016. Shadi is a Baha'i musician that has produced three CDs, Leatherbound Book, Verdant Isle, and her latest release, Daughters of the Kingdom. I asked Shadi to pick five songs from her latest CD to showcase for this interview. I started the interview by asking Shadi where she grew up and what was it like growing up there? I was born in Sydney in a small town in Sydney called Blacktown. Um, and when I was two, my family relocated uh, to Haifa, Israel, which is the international headquarters of the Baha'i world. What was it like? I guess I didn't really understand or appreciate my upbringing there until we left in 97 and relocated back to Australia. It was beautiful. It was very, very multicultural. And I'm just thinking back to being like a seven-year-old. I knew that there were special individuals that I was exposed to and surrounded by who loved me and my family, but I didn't really understand that they were tremendous contributors to Baha'i history and that we'd had personal relationships with them made it even more special for my family. It was a really sacred place. I guess I I understood what reverence for me looked like at a very young age and having like a tangible connection to the Baha'i faith and visiting its holy places, I think had a tremendous impact on my spiritual kind of compass and understanding. I also went to a Hebrew school. So my first language was Hebrew, which I didn't really understand. what that meant until I moved and I had to learn English from scratch at the age of like 10, um, learn to read and write. I think mostly it was the culture. It was like being surrounded by 90 or so different nationalities. You, you think that's normal until you move to a suburban, a suburban part of Brisbane, Australia, and, and you realize that you're not often surrounded by so many cultures and, and faces and, music and, you know, cultural dress. And I think I I learned to appreciate all of these once we'd left, but being in such a sacred spot for those kind of early years definitely had an impact on me later on as an adult. So you grew up as a Baha'i then? Yeah, my parents raised me as a Baha'i. And when I was 15, I, I kind of explored other faiths and practices and philosophies and grew to understand that um, the Baha'i faith was right for me, but I still had a lot to learn, and I still do. Mm. Um, but they were very encouraging. and I was like, this is my own personal journey, that they, I, I didn't have to subscribe to uh, their, their beliefs and lifestyle choices. So uh, do you know the story of how your parents <laughs> became Baha'is? Well, my mom was raised as a Baha'i, but... Her father became a Baha'i. He was a Jew in Iran, and his elder brother became a Baha'i. And my grandfather 
took liberty of kicking him out of the house and punishing him for leaving the Jewish faith. About a year into that, my grandfather, I think, soon discovered that the Baha'i faith was the religion for this day and age, and he wanted to practice it as well. And so he became a Baha'i and met my grandmother, who also is of Jewish descent. And they raised my mom as a pioneer family in a small, small town called Shasavar in Iran before they left in 72, 73. And um, my dad was brought up Catholic in Bathurst. He went to a boarding school, but he was born in Broken Hill mm. in rural New South Wales. And he was sent to boarding school. It was one of the most prestigious boarding schools in Australia, Catholic boarding schools. And at the age of 18, um, I think there were some family issues and he actually moved to New Zealand to kind of start his own life independent of his family and his beliefs. And he became a fisherman in the South Island of New Zealand. And so he would be out at sea for weeks on end and then he would come back and, and he lived on this commune in the South Island of New Zealand, I think in Nelson or Dunedin. And he met, I'm pretty sure, a family um, and a woman by the name of Robin White, who is a very, very famous uh, New Zealand artist. She's kind of like textbook famous for New Zealand arts programs. She was also a Baha'i and later a counselor. And she and her family taught my dad the faith. And so he would go to see and read books about the Baha'i faith and then come back and argue some of his findings and um, ask more questions and then go away again out sea and read more books. And he was really like, he kind of took his Catholic practices of, of reading and study very seriously in his exploration of, of the Baha'i faith. In turn, I think it made him even a better Baha'i. And he often says that of becoming a Baha'i that it made him a better Catholic. He became a Baha'i in his late 20s before he met my mom. Mm. And they met in New Zealand? <laughs> no, they actually met at the opening of the Baha'i Temple in Samoa. My dad traveled there uh, with a bunch of youth from New Zealand in the early 80s. Uh, my mom was living in Palo Alto working at the time, and she and her parents traveled to Samoa for the opening of the temple where my parents met. And then they both went back to their hometowns and stayed in touch and about nine months in of just writing letters back to back and forth. Back in the day. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> they didn't have Facebook back then. Um, they, my dad moved. Well, my dad just got a one-way ticket to California and they drove up the Oregon coast and met up with family in Washington and then came to Vancouver. And I think a couple weeks in decided they wanted to get married. And then my parents got married in Vancouver, which is where now I live. <laughs> they then moved to New Zealand and closed up my dad's businesses and land and everything and sold everything. And then they moved to Sydney uh, where they pioneered to Blacktown or Ranwick, one of those two kind of towns in Sydney. And then myself and my sister were born, and then we moved to Haifa, Israel. So your formative years were in Haifa, Israel, and you mentioned that you were exposed to a lot of different international cultures. And I think the reason of that is not so much Haifa itself, but the fact that the Baha'i World Center has a workforce that's 
international as well as the Baha'i pilgrims coming. <clears throat> and it's all volunteer-based, so friends from all over the world who have uh, an expertise and a particular skill offer their services for a period of time, and the Baha'i World Center, if they need that service, then they will accept this, this friend's application, and these people would come and serve for a period of time, and it could be anything from engineering, building construction, to uh, working in the gardens, to cleaning services, to administrative services. Um, my dad in particular was, um, he'd finished construction engineering, and so he started off in, in the Department of Works, which was basically maintaining and building a lot of the Baha'i-owned properties, um, holy places and living like head, like living quarters. And I think when we were there, there was so much infrastructure being built that there were so many children and so many families because, you know, they needed people with experience in, in the workforce. And so those friends came with families. And so I was, I had so many friends that later Facebook put us in touch. And um, it's been a real trip to kind of get back in touch with these people that I lost contact with. But there were so many kids from different countries and they all, we all spoke like three or four languages. How is it that Haifa, Israel is the location of the International Baha'i Headquarters? So the Baha'i faith was founded in the 19th, mid-19th century in Iran, which was back then um, Persia and part of the Ottoman Empire. And when Baha'u'llah revealed to the world that he was the next prophet founder and the most recent prophet founder, he was exiled and banished um, because they felt that his claims were ludicrous, wrong, and there was no one that came after Muhammad. That was their belief. So he was exiled, and he traveled all throughout the Ottoman Empire and ended up in the penal colony, which is today called Akka, and it's in the very northern tip of Israel on the border of Lebanon. There, Baha'u'llah spent his remaining days as a prisoner of the Ottoman Empire in this penal colony. He was later released just before his passing, where he he died in Akka, just outside of outside of the penal colony, in um, this beautiful mansion, uh, which back then wasn't as beautiful as it is today. And that's where he's buried. And he also said that this will be the place that Baha'is from all over the world would turn to. I guess the administrative body would would then be there later on. And he kind of predicted that um, to his son, Abdu'l-Baha, who began to, I, I guess, lay the foundations and create the what we know today as the international headquarters for the Baha'i faith. Um, but it is where the Holy Family is buried, um, and it's where Baha'is every day turn to to pray, just like Muslims turn to Mecca. And there's many, many holy places there today where the Baha'i family, the Holy Family lived or were associated with. Um, so when friends from all over the world go on a nine-day pilgrimage, they visit these places. And when people go to serve for a period of time, they work in these administrative buildings, which are located next to or very close to these, these holy places. And how old were you when your family returned to Australia? I was about nine, mm -hmm. I think. You said that you had to learn English all over again, yet I thought, well, first of all, I would have thought you would have known English from your parents growing yeah, up with well, them. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I spoke English at home 
but I guess every day I was going to school and my time was invested in, in reading Hebrew and writing Hebrew. I could speak pretty well. I was speaking Farsi and Hebrew fluently as well and bits and pieces of Arabic that I picked up from my friends. But I did have to learn English to read and write from scratch when we moved to Brisbane because toward the later years when my parents started to realize that like we're moving eventually and our kids cannot read or write English, they started giving us you know, tutoring. Mm. And lots of the other kids in the Baha'i World Center were also doing the tutoring because, I mean, we're all going to leave eventually or, or go to a different, you know, the American school. It wasn't easy for me to pick up. I don't think I had a learning disability, but I, it was very, I was very slow to pick things up. Um, I needed a lot of time. I think I was in English as a second language at school until like I was in grade nine or something. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and like kids were reading Harry Potter because it just came out and I was reading picture books with like three words on each page. Wow. <laughs> so uh, it was really hard and embarrassing and sure. kind of traumatic for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When did music enter into your life? It was always in my life. As a child, I would, my mom kind of had us all in this children's choir in, in Haifa where we would sing I was raised singing and my mom would always chant and we kind of uncovered some video footage of, of our visits to Vancouver when we were children um, visiting my family and I'm always humming or singing in these videos like even in the way that I talk um, and I had like from an age of like four or five I had like a vibrato in my voice that I was like shocked to find. I did not know that I was singing from such a young age. I think it became something I turned to when I was in elementary school um, as a way of kind of trying to fit in, because I, I was such an oddball. I mean, the school kind of structure and, and the population also made it difficult. But I used it as kind of a pass, I think, and kind of my way in with like, I guess, a crew at, at a, in elementary school. But as a Baha'i, I would always be singing prayers. And that was kind of how I memorized prayers and kind of, I guess, interpreted them my own way because each tone has its own meaning. And, and I guess I related to that tone. And so um, it was a way of internalizing the prayers that I was, I was reading through, through music. Yeah, at an early age, I wasn't composing, but I was humming and I was, I was listening very attentively and I was learning. Um, and I think I picked up the violin when I was in grade four and, and it, I hated it. It was the worst. And I had a really I get, I'd get headaches and I would be like, why am I getting a headache? And it was because of the, like, the noise that I was creating. <laughs> and my music teacher, her name was Miss Plum or Plumridge, Plumridge, Plum. I can't remember. This was an elementary school and, and she was the one who convinced me, like, you don't need to learn an instrument. Your voice is your instrument. And she kind of went out of her way to create a vocal group that would support me as a vocalist. And that's kind of when I began this identity as a, as a vocalist. And I picked up the guitar a few years later. But yeah, she wow. and, and my mom played a huge part in that. How fortunate <clears throat> is that? I don't know. I think teachers are really undervalued. But yeah. well, without her, I don't know if I would. I'd probably still be playing the violin and getting my <laughs> Um. So when did you produce your first CD? I actually went and did a year of service myself in the Baha'i Holy Land. It was kind of just my lifelong plan. I hated my parents for making us leave. And so oh, wow. I, was, I was always planning on going back in any capacity. And 
I'd applied a few times um, to serve as a janitor and it didn't work out. And finally they accepted my application and I went. And in my, my first few days, I was like, why am I doing this? <laughs> I had to wake up at like 5.30, 4 or 5, five days, five or six days a week to clean toilets and walls and anything that you can find that needed cleaning. And I was just like, what? <laughs> is this really what I wanted my whole life? I want, this is what I wanted. It came with a lot of tests, but I grew up so much in that period. And my relationship with the faith really kind of evolved into something greater. The bonds of friendship that I created in that one year were so impactful that, um, and the relationship that I had with the shrines and prayer and, and reverence really became physical. Again, it was the space, you know, like going into the shrines um, really has that impact on you. And it's a very physical thing, not just a spiritual thing. Well, it, the physical environment affects or impacts your spiritual perception. And so I was really like, I was aware of this. And, and when I went back to Brisbane after my year of service, I really struggled to kind of, I guess, figure out my frame of reference and my friends had kind of changed or not changed, or I had changed and I wasn't relating to them anymore. And the Baha'i community of Brisbane had grown and, and evolved so much in that one year that I was gone, that I was really struggling to fit in. And so at the age of 19 in 2000 and 2009, I, I turned 20, but I was really, really having a hard time. And my mom said, why don't you, why don't you turn to music? And while I was serving in Haifa, I had created a few musical pieces to go along with the sacred writings of the Baha'i faith. And my parents kind of took it upon themselves to contact um, Mr. Louis Shelton, who uh, had kind of heard me play at a summer school and, and said that he would be, he'd want to work with me. Um, so they contacted him and found the funds. And I recorded my first Baha'i-inspired album called Leatherbound Book in 2009. And following that, I, I was still in university, so I was I was recording and I was traveling and touring and and I was still attending classes. Um, I studied business. In 2011, I I figured I had enough material for another album, and so I recorded Verdant Isle, which again was a collection of songs um, inspired by the history or my experience as a Baha'i, and then also prayers put to music. And then I, as soon as I released that album, I actually moved to Canada where I was focusing more on my career than music. Um, and then just this past few months, I released Daughters of the Kingdom. Much thanks once again to my parents who kind of created a space and, and my sister who helped me fund the project through a Kickstarter campaign. What I'd like to do is to showcase some of the songs from Daughters of the Kingdom. Yeah. I asked you to select five songs. Maybe you could give a, a brief introduction of what inspired you to write the song and what should people look out for when listening to the song. The first one is Verdant Isle. I, I wanted to share Verdant Isle because it touches on my childhood uh, being raised in the Holy Land. I, I wrote it along with my dad, kind of reflecting on Baha'u'llah's accounts of the Rezvan Garden, which is my favorite holy spot in Haifa or in Israel. I, I have really vivid memories of spending time there as a child, 
but I also wanted to reflect on Baha'u'llah's own experiences. And so I kind of went through archival writings and, um, you know, how he'd reference the garden. Um, he'd talk about the jasmine and the mulberry tree and in the scent in the air. I, I'm trying to reflect on, on some of the lyrics, but looked on my own kind of experiences as a child, kind of crawling on these pebbles and hearing the water trickle around me. And there's kind of this like beautiful river that kind of runs around the garden and feeds into the garden and gives it life. Um, and there's these beautiful orchards and I remember the peacocks and, and, and so I kind of mixed my own recollection of the gardens with uh, Baha'u'llah's experiences from his writings. And I wrote this song called Verdant Isle. And I was hoping this would be the first song that you'd share kind of while I'm talking about my childhood in, in Haifa. I thought it would be appropriate, even though it's so different to the rest of my work found in Daughters of the Kingdom. I also want to say that I really started putting the sacred texts in music surely out of recognizing that there was such a need. While I was serving in the community and working with youth, I recognized that there wasn't as much contemporary Baha'i-inspired material as I thought. And it kind of was disheartening because there were so many people around me with such skill and talent. And so I kind of, at the age of 15, I started to write and write music and melodies, really, really simple ones, which you can, you can hear on Leatherbound Book, mm. my first album. And yeah, Verdant Isle is the second, and I, I guess I wanted to reflect on the childlike kind of innocence of, of being raised as a Baha'i and kind of reflecting back on my own experiences being raised as a Baha'i and not really understanding the importance or the relevance of things until later on in life. And, and Verdant Isle kind of encompasses that. So this is Shadi Tululi Wallace performing Verdant Isle. Birds sung 
Now, the second piece that you wanted to showcase was Royal Falcon. So Royal Falcon is on my latest record, Daughters of the Kingdom. Um, this record was produced by a good friend of mine, Leif Thorseth, um, a Baha'i friend in Vancouver. Royal Falcon is a co-write that I share with him. And there was this melody that he would always play on the piano, and which is the melody that you hear on Royal Falcon. And anytime he would come and visit me at my workplace, I work at a nonprofit music school for at-risk kids. And so we have 17,000 square feet full of instruments. And he would come and visit me at work sometimes and we would jam and he would always turn to the piano and play this melody. And at the time I was, I was reflecting on this, on this writing that Baha'u'llah kind of shared with a very prominent Zoroastrian believer of that time, kind of professing his manifestation and his message for this day and very, very strongly saying that I am the next manifestation, like kind of not even hiding away from it, like very, very clearly saying it. And I just thought that attitude of just being so upfront and straightforward was just so admirable. And the lines in it have this beautiful imagery saying, I am the Royal Falcon on the arm of the Almighty. I just think that's so, like the imagery that it kind of conveys is so poignant and beautiful. And so this prayer or this section of the tablet, um, which is from the Tabernacle of Unity revealed by Baha'u'llah, kept coming through my mind, emphasizing the universality of Baha'u'llah's revelation and the central teachings as, as the teaching for this day and age. I just felt that that melody with the piano fit so well. And um, we were kind of trying to mimic Sigur Ross, who's a, a musician from Iceland that we uh, really like. And he always starts very small and then ends in these kind of real epic endings. And we kind of wanted to replicate that in Royal Falcon. And we got enough funding that we could feature horns. So we added the horns in at the very end. And I just think it's, it's definitely one of my more favorite songs from the record. So this is Royal Falcon.
The next piece you wanted to showcase is called The Followers. My dad is an amazing poet. He often sends me these songs or these, these poetry that he's written. And um, I have like a whole file of them on my desktop for whenever he sends them to me. And quite often I'm kind of like, okay, this needs some work. This particular piece that he wrote called The Followers just came ready. It was so perfect. The way that he'd broken it up was just so ideal. I only had to change a couple little words or phrases um, just to kind of mimic the cadences from the previous line. My dad was reading a compilation by a very special Baha'i named Adi Tahizadeh. It's called The Revelation of Baha'u'llah, and it kind of talks about the the life and the teachings of Baha'u'llah, the manifestation of God for the Baha'i faith. It was inspired by a story about two very early believers who followed Baha'u'llah as he walked around the mansion of Bachi for the first time uh, once he was released from the prison of Akka. The story can be found in volume one of Revelation of Baha'u'llah, and it's very mystic, which is why I kind of chose a Western style melody for it. I've also been listening to a lot of country Appalachian stuff. was inspired to kind of put this very mystical story in the history of the Baha'i faith to a very 
kind of storytelling method of, of country music. And the, at the very end, these two believers kind of get, they get to the, to the mansion and watch Baha'u'llah go into the mansion and they find that they're surrounded by thousands of, of people who are circling and welcoming. They're circling the, the, the sh- uh, mansion of Bachi and, and they're welcoming Baha'u'llah. These two believers are so elated, inspired by what they've just witnessed that they go home and, and they write poems and drink tea all night. And this is Adib Tahirzadeh's grandfather, I believe, and Nabil, who were very prominent believers of that time. And they later kind of confessed to Baha'u'llah that we followed you and we apologize, but we wrote this beautiful poem about this experience. And he said, you know, and they ask about those souls who they, they were with. And he said, they, they were souls from the next world. They were the concourse on high. And these are the prophets of the past and the future who are present in our daily lives. And they were there welcoming Baha'u'llah. And so my dad was inspired by this story and wanted to write about it. And I put it to music. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. So this is The Followers.
is called Radiant Heart. Yeah. So Radiant Heart, I kind of composed that. It's two very simple chords when I was probably about 15. And I remember trying to mimic my mom as she's a very, very prominent Persian chanter. I was trying to mimic her style of Persian chant. It's very unique to where she grew up and it's also very favored because it's, it's very much in the original form that the early believers would chant. Um, I don't know how she's able to do that, but that's how her grandfather would chant. And that's how it's kind of passed down orally. And I was in my room trying to mimic it. And I had this very simple hidden word that I wanted to put to music. And I remember her catching me being, and she said something like, what are you trying to do? And I was like, I don't know, I'm just playing around. She's like, it sounds weird. Because <laughs> it's like, it's English, but I'm trying to mimic her style of chanting in, in Farsi and Persian. That was when I was 15. And then when I was serving in Haifa, I, I met a friend who now lives in Toronto and he's an amazing calligraphy artist named Reza Mosmond. And we were playing around with it. And he kind of was the one who introduced this idea of, bringing the original writing in Arabic, which is in the hand that uh, Baha'u'llah wrote in the language that Baha'u'llah wrote the prayer and then mixing it with the English. And so that kind of, that planted a seed. And then when I moved back to Australia and I was working with Louis Shelton, I shared this piece with him and the idea that I had of working with my mom. And up until that point, I don't think anything had been done like it before. And so it was kind of really hard for my mom to wrap her head around (laughs) <laughs> but Louie and I were like, just do it, just try this. And I remember sitting in my bed for like hours with my mom trying to figure out how we were going to make it work because she sings in a completely different register that's familiar to her, but it has a lot of what we would know as like flats and sharps and like half sharp and half flat. I don't even know what it's called, but it's like notes in between what we know as notes in the Western world. Mm-hmm. She would be doing that. It was an interesting experience to try and work the Middle Eastern kind of register of, of notes with my mom into what I'd created into like a very simple two chord melody that just repeated itself. It worked out well. And I think it's probably my most well-known piece. And I wanted to share that since then I've recorded multiple times with my mom on her own album called Phoenix of Love. And I, I feature that album three times in English while she chants and sings in, in Farsi and Persian, uh, Farsi and Arabic, sorry. And then also on each of my records, I feature her once. So, but this is the very first one that we did together. So I wanted to share that, this kind of 
the beginning of this journey of working with my mom. That's great. I also really wanted to, I guess, relate to the Persian culture. And I never really felt like I had, like I didn't really have many Persian friends. I didn't speak the language. I wasn't really close to my mom's family because I all lived in North America. And so singing like this and singing with her connects me to those roots that I'm, I'm unfamiliar with in a way. So this is called Radiant Heart.
Now, the final piece that you wanted to showcase is called Fire Tablets. Uh, my mom came to me with this piece as a suggestion of something that we could work together on for the new record, Daughters of the Kingdom. It's the third section of this tablet that Baha'u'llah wrote called the Fire Tablet. And in it, in the first few sections, he's talking to God, lamenting, really kind of emphasizing, why did you choose me? This is so difficult. And I'm totally paraphrasing the manifestation of God right now. But this is my understanding. It was, it was written in the most difficult time of his life. And the tone of desperation is so clear. And then in this, in this section that I've chosen to put to music, which is the last section, God has turned to Baha'u'llah and is talking to him and responding to his anguish and using these beautiful, beautiful metaphors to suggest why Baha'u'llah is the chosen one and why we have to go through these tests to overcome them and to become stronger. And I think it reflects not only on the manifestation of God, but in our daily struggles as we, as we grow and, and develop as human beings and as a society. I mean, it's, it's in there, and my mom is uh, actually chanting. Her sections are chanting the refrains that are the names of God. So I start with saying, were it not for the cold, how would the heat of thy words prevail? And then my mom's refrain is, O expounder of the worlds. Um, and these are titles of God. And O light of the world, O patience of the world. And then we kind of come back to those at the very end. And I really wanted, again, like a very simple, haunting melody uh, that would, again, kind of crescendo and, and build as the song progresses in, in separate sections. And I didn't know this at the time, but I wrote it in the most unusual timing, which is 7-8. But then when I get to what I, I see as the chorus or the bridge, mm -hmm. I kind of switch it between 7-8 and 8-8. It caused a lot of complications in the recording process. And it's definitely something that looking back on, I regret, but like it definitely has an impact on the quality of the song and the style, um, which I can't really pinpoint, but I just wanted it to be reverent and beautiful and relatable. And I think by incorporating, incorporating my mom there too, it was a very unique kind of addition. So yeah, this is the fire tablet. the cold, how would the heat of the words prevail? Were not for calamity, how would the sun of thy patience shine? Because of the wicked, thou were created to bear and endure. How sweet was thy dawning on the horizon of the covenant. Among the stars of sedition 
and the yearning after people find your music shoddy 
They can find it on my website, www.shadytolouiwallace, S-H-A-D-I-T-O-L-O-U-I-W-A-L-L-A-C-E.com. You can also look at me on YouTube. I have a pretty active Facebook group, Shadi Tilly Wallace Music. I'm also found on iTunes, Spotify, CD Baby, and all of those things that exist online. But the best is to um, buy my record either physically or download it directly through my website. Well, Shadi, thank you so much for telling your story and sharing your music. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Shadi Tolui Wallace, a Baha'i musician that has released her new CD, Daughters of the Kingdom. You can find her music at shadytolouiwallace.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.